This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, March 17th. I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, a VCA Phase 4 update, community housing manager has his shovel ready, a day in the life of a miner with Vinton Cole, and a mountain weather forecast. But first, Koto reflects the values of this unique community that celebrates civil liberties, nonconformist creativity, egalitarian social values, and the historic preservation of Telluride. Help keep that unique and funky spirit alive with a donation to your community radio station. Go to koto.org to donate. And thanks. Mountain Village's latest affordable housing project is near ready to break ground. KOTO's Julia Caulfield has more. Construction on the Village Court Apartments expansion is just around the corner. We are at that point where we are actually going to start moving very quickly on building an actual housing project. That's Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser speaking at a town council meeting this week. The housing development will consist of two new buildings at VCA. In total, there will be an additional 35 units with 88 new bedrooms. One building, Building E, will be a mix of one- and two-bedroom apartments. The other, Building W, will be four bedrooms, more dorm-style units. According to Mike Foster with Triumph Development, the company developing the project, he and town staff recently met with a modular home construction company. Met with them to finalize pricing, finalize some specifications, and start looking at just colors and other configurations for both buildings. So I think we both walked away impressed with what we saw and excited for them to get through that permitting process so that we can actually start making the mods at the factory as we're starting to do the site prep work here. Foster says they hope to begin site work in mid-April. Once we start, um, it'll be a lot of grading, it'll be a lot of utility work, foundation work in in preparation for the mods to show up. Uh, Building W will be the first one to to go vertical. As you're looking at the site, it's to the left. Uh, The mods start showing up on that one in uh, September of this year. And then building E will show up basically about two to three weeks later. So it's starting to show up the first part of October. From there, developers will start adding roofing and exterior elements. Foster says building W should be completed in January 2024, with building E following just behind in mid-February. Mountain Village Town Council also heard an update on the Lot 644 housing development in the Meadows. Tune in to Monday's newscast for the story. The town of Telluride recently hired its first-ever community housing manager, a position it created in order to support its wide array of housing initiatives. Despite the newness of the position, the man chosen to fill the role is a well-known name in local government. James Van Hooser, who stepped into the role this March, has worked for both the town and the county previously. Van Hooser sat down with Kodo News to talk about the new gig, and he says he's hit the ground running. Yeah, it's an interesting time to jump in with both feet because there's so many different projects in so many different phases. You got Voodoo that is, you know, under construction. You've got Sunnyside that is com- nearing completion. You've got... Um, 
Canyonlands Tower House, where it has an existing RFP issued, but interview's not done yet. Uh, that closes on April 18th, if any uh, design build teams are listening and want to bid on that RFP. And then uh, Building F, that is uh, that we're trying to you know build the team for. And does the town hiring for this new position sort of represent uh, even more oomph behind their affordable housing initiatives? It, does it indicate that sort of this focus is something that's going to remain a long time into the future? I would say so. I think that the town has been working to staff up in a lot of areas. The town of Telluride staff does, in my humble opinion, does more with less uh, than many similar organizations with similar goals and expectations. And um, the council has made it a priority to uh, get existing staff the support they need and to bring on additional folks. You've worked for the town in other capacities. You've also worked at the county recently. Uh, What specifically was it about community housing that um, drew you to this position? So I've been looking for a full-time housing position uh, for about the last decade. It's what I'm passionate about in my career. I've spent almost my entire career in government, in public service. It's uh, where I feel most useful and um, like to be. And then within that niche, um, I've always been drawn to housing issues. Uh, in my personal opinion, it's, uh, there are a few things more important than having a roof over your head. Um, and I think of housing as a universal human right and am excited to help uh, on that front as much as I can. You know, housing is probably one of the issues we cover most. You know, as you come to this position, do you have any kind of unique viewpoints that you feel like you want to share on this issue? So something that I love about this community is that we all have our opinions and um, you might disagree on the size of a project or the location of a project or the appropriate scale of a project, but everyone in this community understands and values affordable housing. And that is not a universal truth. I spent two years working for city and county of Denver doing a lot of housing policy initiatives. And um, there were a lot of folks that are very on board, but you did have that segment of the community and the development community is like, well, why are we doing any affordable housing at all? Um, Which is not something you see here. And that's, I love how this community rallies around trying to stay a community. So you've been on the job a couple weeks. Uh, It sounds like you've hit the ground running. How's it been so far? And what are your uh, hopes and dreams for the position to come? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I was able to hit the ground running, as you mentioned before. I uh, have experience working for the town of Telluride. It was in the planning department from 2013 to 2020. So people keep asking me, well, how was your first day? And I was like, well, Felt a lot like day 1000 or day 1500. And so that's been a, uh, a really nice, nice kind of homecoming. I just, I want to do more housing, you know. Uh, yeah, onward and upward, trying to make it happen. That was James Van Hooser, the town of Telluride's first ever community housing manager. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. The boys' basketball season is wrapped up, but NHL hockey is still going strong. In this installment of A Day in the Life of a Minor, Telluride High School's Fenton Cole brings the latest. Have a listen. Yeah, that's how we living and you know. 
can't touch this. Look at my eyes, man. You can't touch this. This is Fenton Colner's sports updates. Boys Varsity Basketball lost their playoff game against the Plateau Valley Cowboys 59-28. They finished 12-9 overall and third in the league for the first time since 2018. Good job, boys. We're so proud of you. The Chicago Blackhawks won their home game against the Bruins 6-3. They have a road game against the Nashville Predators. The Denver Nuggets lost their road game against the Raptors 125-110. to And the Calgary Flames won their home game against the Ottawa Senators 5-1. The five Flames players that scored were Jonathan Huberdeau, Rasmus Anderson, Elias Lindholm, Noah Hennepin, and Trevor Lewis. The Colorado Avalanche won their road game against the Toronto Maple Leafs 2-1 in a shootout. They have road games against Ottawa and Detroit before they host Chicago. That's it for your sports update for this week. I'm Fantan Cole reporting live from Telluride High School, and we'll see you next week. Whether you're in the mood to venture out or cozy up and stay in, Mountain Film for Locals can provide. From the relative comfort of the Wilkinson Library program room, the latest short film event, and the last of this season, we'll explore the themes of wild adventure and indomitable spirit. The screening, taking place on Wednesday, March 22nd at 5.30 p.m., will feature the Oscar-nominated short and 2022 Mountain Film Fest pick, Stranger at the Gate. According to Colorado Parks and Wildlife estimates, there are roughly 20,000 bears in the state, and their population is growing. As to how many dumpsters, trash cans, bird feeders, composters, and other similar fixtures exist in Colorado, who's to say? But it's well known there's enough of them to provide many opportunities for human-bear interactions. It's in the interest of both wildlife and communities to keep those interactions to a minimum. And this spring, CPW is looking to fund projects aiming at reducing those human-bear conflicts. Following a successful round of projects last year, CPW is again offering its Human-Bear Conflict Reduction Community Grant Program to applicants across the state of Colorado. Municipalities, individuals, organizations, and businesses are all invited to apply for a chunk of funding ranging anywhere from $5,000 to $500,000. In total, the grant program will release a million dollars in funding. Projects funded in 2022 include dumpster upgrades in Durango, adding bear boxes at campgrounds in Green Mountain Falls, and an effort to harvest fruit from trees in Boulder before it fell to the ground and attracted foraging wildlife. Applications for the Human-Bear Conflict Reduction Community Grant Program are due by May 5, 2023, and can be submitted at cpw.state.co.us. A bill to help farmers and ranchers repair their own equipment got final approval by the state Senate on Thursday. The bill would require agriculture equipment manufacturers hand over parts, software, instructions, and other tools necessary for owners to make repairs. Usually, owners have to go directly to the manufacturer or dealer for maintenance. Now, the House will review the Senate's amendments. 
If they're approved, the bill heads to Governor Jared Polis. Former Representative Pat Schrouder, the pioneering advocate for women's rights and family rights, died in Florida earlier this week at the age of 82. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's John Kellen has more. Schroeder served Colorado in the U.S. House of Representatives for 24 years and is being remembered as a trailblazing leader. Pat Schroeder was first elected to Congress in 1972 and over the next nearly two and a half decades became an influential member. In one major achievement, she championed the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993, which protected the jobs of those taking time off to care for a newborn, a sick child, or a parent. In a 1992 interview with KGNU, a year before the act passed, Representative Schroeder explained why it was so important. All the work and family issues impact on women the most because women are the caregivers in most families. And we have a workplace that just doesn't recognize caregiver roles at all. In fact, you're penalized if you have to be a caregiver. Schroeder earned a degree from Harvard Law School and after leaving Congress became a law professor at Princeton University. Governor Jared Polis said Pat Schroeder broke barriers with her leadership. A former press secretary said she recently suffered a stroke and died in a hospital in Celebration, Florida. For KGNU, I'm John Kellen. Many people enjoy a plate of corned beef and cabbage to celebrate St. Patrick's Day but it's very unlikely that people in Ireland will be eating it on St. Paddy's Day, or indeed any day. That's because corned beef and cabbage is an American dish that became a staple of Irish emigrants when they landed in the U.S. From the Rocky Mountain Community Radio archives, Maeve Conran spoke with chef Hugh O'Neill, originally from Dublin, former owner of Hugh's Bistro and St. Killian's Cheese Shop in Denver. First thing that got me piqued was reading Frank McCourt, Angela's Ashes, and he was talking about, and that was in the 1930s, I think, he was talking about his Jewish neighbors in Brooklyn and how they would cook for him and take care of him. And either it was him or I got on to reading something else about it, about when the Irish came over here, the Jews were the only people who would give them the time of day because uh, the Irish had this strange language They were all emaciated from the famine. It was in the 1850s. The Jews were poor themselves, and they looked after the Irish because they had this shared uh, history. You know, they were both oppressed peoples. They didn't have their lands, and the Italians didn't like them. The Germans didn't like them, so the Jews took them in, and as soon as the Irish um, started to earn a bit of money, um, they said, well, let's support these guys. So the only place was the deli. They go down to the deli, and there's no bacon there. So they said, well, let's see what they have. And the cheapest cut of beef is the brisket. So they started eating the brisket. So then, you know, it was a no-brainer for them to put it with cabbage and potatoes. And then it became the dish of the Irish immigrants. But they'd never had it in Ireland, which is interesting. So when you started to write about this, did you just feel compelled as an Irish person to address this issue of corned beef? Or, you know, were you culinarily intrigued at some point about, you know, the flavor of all of this. I, I wanted to address it because I wanted to, for years, and, and I think most Irish people are being very polite. They just kind of take it and don't say anything to Americans who are thinking, yeah, this is the real Irish food. Because St. Patrick's Day is celebrated all over the world now. 
And in Ireland, it's actually, when I was a kid, you know, and, and you, it was a, strictly a religious holiday. But now it's actually been designated a non-religious holiday in Ireland. It's a secular day, and it's now celebrated all over the world. So I kind of see the idea of corned beef and cabbages being a meal for all immigrants, because most people eat cabbage and potatoes, especially people from poor economic backgrounds who are forced to immigrate from Latin America to Africa to Eastern Europe. Everyone loves potatoes and cabbage. So to me, it's it's become like a global dish. It doesn't necessarily have its history in Ireland per se, but it really is the food, the staple food of immigrants. And so when Irish people immigrated to the US, but you've decided to try and actually come up with a recipe uh, yeah, that uh, isn't traditionally Irish, but, you know, as we're kind of acknowledging, it's the it's part of the history, though, of the Irish diaspora. It is absolutely right. And I wanted to try it because, as I say, most of the stuff people buy it already corned in a supermarket and it's, it's loaded with crap and preservatives and, you know, and I wanted to make a clean corned beef to see if I could cure it. And I had a book on charcuterie and curing, and I've always been interested in curing meats and sausages and hams and things like that and making sauerkrauts and pickles and things so I thought I'm going to cure it and eat it so I went out and bought a really nice piece of you know organic brisket and went from there and sure enough yeah it's a very delicious meal and then I thought well cabbage I mean good chance the Irish were actually eating sauerkraut and not cabbage when they came to the states uh, that they would get in the Jewish deli so I made kraut to go with it so and it was a delicious meal. I've eaten it two years in a row now. <laughs> and what do you do with the potatoes? I just steam them on top of the sauerkraut. So I'll cook the sauerkraut in a pan with some duck fat and white wine. So it's kind of almost more of an Alsatian idea what they eat in Alsace with the sauerkraut and all the sausages, you know. So I cook it in a little Riesling and duck fat and then put the potatoes on top and they steam in the sauerkraut and wine juices. And it's really tasty. And have you served this to American friends who might have, I have. the more traditional corned beef and cabbage uh, experience? They're pretty shocked. Yeah, <laughs> they're pretty shocked because it's, it's a super tasty meal. I mean, people do it more out of nostalgia for Ireland, more more than looking for a culinary experience, you know. But if you eat really nice corned beef and cabbage, it's perfectly delicious. So when you so. were growing up, what was the staple dish in your family? We, ha- we had um, a lot of bacon and cabbage, like boiled bacon. And you don't really get the cut here. I think it's cut off the back. It's a big hunk of bacon that comes brined by the butcher. They brine it so it's salted in wa- in a water solution and you take it home and soak it, um, sometimes overnight or just boil it as it is in a lot of water and the water is very salty and then you just take it out and slice it and then you put the cabbage into that bacon water and cook the cabbage and sometimes it would be served just like that with potatoes or with what they call a parsley sauce, which is like a bechamel, French style bechamel sauce with chopped parsley in it, which is really tasty. So we'd often have that or like a a roast chicken and cabbage and potatoes or a leg of lamb. Leg of lamb's the common meat. It's what the Irish like to eat. (laughs) Well, it is so interesting when you see the food that is served here on St. Patrick's Day, but, you know, in establishments that are, say, Irish pubs or whatever, it's so far removed from what you would actually experience in Ireland. It's so far removed. I mean, why, why don't people serve smoked salmon? That's a classic Irish dish. What are some other suggestions that you could give to listeners who now want to maybe steer clear of corned beef and cabbage, but eat something that is also still traditionally Irish? Well, you know, the um, Colcannon is a uh, terrific dish. It's just chopped kale and mashed potatoes. 
The bread, yeah. the bread is huge. Yeah, the brown bread, what we call brown bread, what they call soda bread um, here with um, good butter and smoked salmon. I, lo- I eat that all the time I don't, here. And but one of the dishes that I certainly enjoy when I go to Ireland and when I grew up in Ireland that I never see served in Irish establishments in America are shellfish, like mussels. Yes, and And right. a pot full of shellfish because, of course, Ireland is an island yeah. and seafood abounds. When we were kids, we used to collect periwinkles and you'd have a bowl of periwinkles just with melted butter, you know, and prawns. The old the Dublin Bay prawns were a famous dish and I think they became overfished by the 1960s and they're pretty much gone now. But you still see them in Dublin, but they're coming in from, you know, Spain nowadays. But they're still called a Dublin Bay prawn. But seafood is huge in Ireland. You're no more than 60 miles from the coast anywhere in Ireland. Dairy, of course, is huge. Cheese exports from Ireland are huge now. And I think it's acknowledged that the cheese that has been you know, produced there for years yeah. is actually pretty good and yeah. is seen as quite a delicacy in yeah. other countries. It's very good because the grass is so rich in Ireland. It's the greenest grass you ever see. The land is beautiful. Even a butter, mass-produced butter like uh, Kerrygold, the Irish butter, which you can buy all over here. It comes from small co-ops in Tipperary. All these local farmers bring the meat into the, the sorry, the butter into the creamery and make the butter. So it's a, it's a high-quality food, I think. Hugh O'Neill, thank you. Terrific. Thank you very much, Maeve. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight followed by clearing skies in a low around 10 degrees. Saturday calls for sun, with a slight chance of snow in the afternoon and a high near 35 degrees, while Saturday night should be mostly cloudy, with a low near 10. Sunday calls for sunny skies with a high near 40, and Sunday night should bring clouds and a low in the high teens. This has been the news for Friday, March 17th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our winter fun drive. A huge thank you to Mark Abe, Gino Albert, Amy Allison, Amanda Baltzley, Kathy Barber, James Berkowitz, the Brenners, Roberta and Patrick Brow, Andrew and Elizabeth Bruce, John Bruner, Jake Burns, Scott Chambers, Lenny Conway, Tony and Barkley Duranyi, Lawrence Day Bevort, Debbie Fest, Kathy Green, Baribal Haka, Erica and Dan Henschel, John and Carlota Horn, Kurt Hughes, Richard and Deborah Idle, Jim Jennings, Didi and Peter Johnson, Sally Jordan, Christina Koshthau, and Chris Kwasniewski. Thank you all so much. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, Koto listeners. This is Claire from Telluride Chamber Music. Here to tell you about the very exciting final concert of our winter season, coming up on Sunday, March 26th. 
the Grammy-nominated violinist Tessa Lark will be performing at The Palm at 6pm in a co-presentation by Telluride Chamber Music and Palm Arts. Tessa is one of the most captivating artistic voices of our time, consistently praised by critics and audiences for her astounding range of sounds, technical agility and musical elegance. In 2020, she was nominated for a Grammy for Sky, a bluegrass-inspired violin concerto written for her by Michael Talk. And in 2021, she made her debuts at New York's Carnegie Hall and London's Wigmore Hall. A budding superstar in the classical realm, she is also a highly acclaimed fiddler in the tradition of her native Kentucky, delighting audiences with programming that includes Appalachian and bluegrass music and inspiring composers to write for her. The performance on Sunday, March 26th will take place at 6pm, with both Tessa and the audience seated on the stage in the Michael D. Palm Theatre, which creates a uniquely intimate atmosphere. Tessa will then be leading an educational student outreach for the Telluride Public Schools on Monday, March 27th at 9am. To buy tickets to this fantastic concert, go to telluridepalm.com. Advanced tickets are $35 for adults, $20 for students, and on the day, it's $40 for adults and $25 for students. Thank you so much, and we'll see you there. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you'd like to comment, please contact the staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues. <laughs>